0: Let's go ahead and start out this morning with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful day that you have given us. We pray that we would be glorifying you in all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. Lord, this morning as we examine your life, the humility that that you took on, the the challenges and struggles that you endured for us we pray that you would open our eyes open our minds to understand what you've given us in your word lord bless this time that we have together in jesus name amen Amen. Amen. all right we are going to start out by reading the question and answer question 48 larger catechism how did christ humble himself in his life and the answer is, Christ humbled himself in his life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled by conflicting in the iniquities of the world, the temptations of sin, and the iniquities of his flesh, whether common to the nature of man or particularly accompanying that of his low condition. All right, so in studying this question, there are a lot of great resources out there. And I think we have a tendency sometimes to read over this question and not recognize how amazing the truths are. Thanks, Will. So uh, if we look, the, uh, the shorter catechism dedicates one question answer to the humility of Christ's life, both birth, life, and death. And the larger catechism really throws some meat into that. I mean, the shorter catechism does explain it in its fullness, but the larger catechism really drills down. And my goal today is to help you think through this question and answer and draw out Scripture to explain the answer, in all of its parts, and hopefully to allow you to see how grateful and thankful we are for what Christ put himself through, coming under the law, fulfilling it perfectly, so as the second Adam has perfect obedience to the law, and he underwent all of this to be our mediator between us and the Father. So... The explanations the larger catechisms give really draw our eye because we are here in this world, and sometimes when we read through it, we just sort of say, yeah, he endured what we endured, the temptations, but he endured so much more, and so I hope to go through that today. So we're going to break this down in the different parts of the answer, we're going to start with Christ humbled himself in his life by subjecting himself to the law. Um, who's got Galatians 4.4? Let's we'll start here. Me. <laughs> right behind you. Gary, you're next. Okay, so, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, caveat, all these questions about humility, we are going to have some overlap. So, there is some from last week where we talked about Christ being born in humility. That's where this comes in. But, I think the real astonishing thing here is that he was born under the law. So he's made subject to the law. This is is important because he is the son of God. He is the lawgiver, and now he's made himself subject to the law. He could have come into the world as one who is above the law or as a lawgiver, Right? He could have been born into power. But last week we talked through this as well. He, he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in the lowest of estates. In a stable, that's right. Uh, he's not trying to be a supreme deity as a creature. So, this that befell him. Let me get back to my, my point I'm trying to get at here. Hold on. Okay, so he experiences life not at the top of the economic scale, but also uh, temptations that are indirect conflict with the devil. He came in at extreme poverty. And humbled himself, being subject to temptations. So, why was it necessary for Christ to be subject to the law of God?
1: Is it because he was here to fulfill it.
0: Yes. Yeah. It, he came to fulfill as the second Adam, and so he had to be fully subject to the law. The amazing part about this is the fact that he willingly, voluntarily, in a plan with the Father before time, had already willingly said he was going to do this. The law creator is now going to put himself under the law. It's just mind-blowing. So Christ was subject to the law, the whole law, and that includes both the moral and the ceremonial law. When he put himself in this position, he did so and he didn't give himself any extra leniency. He wasn't able to go beyond, Abel's the wrong word there. So he wasn't, he put himself within the constraints of the normal human. He didn't come in with with an extra card or something up his sleeve and able to do other things. He needed to experience everything we experience. So uh, we're going to move to the next part of the question where we talk about him fully, perfectly fulfilling that law. Um, we're going to read Matthew 3.15. If you read it, you got to be loud. Go for it. But
2: uh, Jesus answered and said to them, No to be so for thus he is bidding for us to fulfill all righteousness.
0: Then he allowed us. Go ahead and, well, so the context here, we're talking about John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, uh, knowing who Christ was, didn't, he didn't need repentance, and so he was reluctant to baptize Christ, but Jesus knowing that in order for all righteousness to be fulfilled, he must be identified with his people. That's the context that you're looking at here. Uh, Matthew 5.17. Go ahead, Simeon. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the
2: prophets? I did not come to destroy the
0: this should be ringing all sorts of bells. We just had a sermon over this, and Pastor did an incredibly good job explaining that doing away with the law, uh, that Christ didn't come to do away with the law, came to fulfill the law, still means that we are under the law. It's simply an explanation that Christ came under the law, and he is going to fulfill it in its entirety. Uh, So one of the things that Pastor keeps bringing up to our attention in the, the AM service is how the sins start here in the heart. And so in the fulfilling of the law, Christ fulfilled it in its entirety. He didn't, he didn't mentally dwell on a sin and therefore act it out. He fulfilled it entirely. Romans 5, 18 through 19. Go ahead, Chuck. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men.
1: For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. All
0: right. Kids, were you all listening? All right, we're going to test it out. Those, uh, that verse right there, or those verses right there, uh, talk about two different men. We've got the former and the latter, right? Read through that verse one more time, kids, and tell me who that verse is speaking about in the former. Anybody? All right. So therefore, as though one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Who's it talking about there? Adam, Adam I heard it. All right. And so by deduction, as for one man's disobedience, uh, many were made sinners. I'm sorry. Uh, as for one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Who are we talking about here? I heard it somewhere over here. Second Adam, we're talking about Jesus. Absolutely. So Christ fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He never broke any of the law's commands. And he fully performed all the law commands but here you need to understand why being subject to the law is considered christ humbling himself christ as god by nature is above the law by nature he's not under the law but he is the author of the law and in voluntary duty of becoming man he took on the form of a servant under the law. Okay, we'll move to the next part of the question, which reads, and by conflicting with the indignities of this world. Another way to read this is by struggling with the indignities of this world. Uh, let's go ahead and get into our first reading, Psalm 22:6. 6. Go ahead.
1: I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people.
0: All right, so this is David writing here, speaking of the direct contrast to God and his holiness. Now, how much more Christ felt this way? Isaiah 53, 2 through 3. You've already read one. Anybody else? Go ahead, Simeon.
2: Grow-up before him at a tender plant and at a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comfort or common landliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire. Him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, and acquainted with grief. <clears throat> and we hid, as if it were our faces, from him. He was despised and
0: Very good. So overall, man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Christ, who when he walked on this earth how do we explain it? there's a certain amount of indignity that comes when the owner of a facility is walking through his facility and somebody looks at him and doesn't even know who he is that's just a small example of what the indignity here Christ came down and his overall ruler, and nobody knew who he was. Hebrews uh, 12, 2-3. Go ahead.
2: Looking to Jesus,
1: the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted.
0: All right, so Christ is the second Adam. Now think about this. What if Adam were in the garden where everything was dead set against him? When when God created Adam in the the garden, he had a, a tree he needed to stay away from, right? When Christ came down, Everything was against him. It's not equal ground here. Christ endured so much more on our behalf. And the indignities of the world are contrary to his holy nature. And because of this, in this, him putting himself in the world and not above the indignities and live through them, through and amount them, he shows his humiliation in this way. So, uh, what I'm trying to get at here is uh, when Christ went through the natural indignities where everything was against him, he humbled himself because naturally in his heavenly state, this does not happen. He willingly put himself in our shoes. So let's talk through the temptations of Satan. There are two uh, passages that are the parallel passages. We're going to go through and, and read them both. Um, Matthew 4, 1 through 12.
2: I got it. Go ahead. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me." Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. (laughs)
0: <laughs> All right, uh, Luke 4, 1 through 14. It's a long one. Go ahead, Gabe.
1: And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And, while, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, guard yourself down from here, for it is
2: written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike a foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is said, You shall not
1: put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportunity. And Jesus returned in the power of
0: the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Wow! All right, did y'all just listen to that? Sometimes, sometimes we read through things, and we don't quite understand what we just read. That is amazing. All right, let's start. Start at the beginning of the passages. Um, Jesus was fasting. How long did he fast? You think he was hungry? The tempter himself comes up and says, Hey, you got the power to do this, don't you? Make that into bread. Is there anything inherently sinful with Christ creating food on the spot out of nothing? Yeah, he does it other places, right? What's wrong with this? Why is this wrong? I find it interesting that uh, Satan started off with the first Adam, with food, and he starts off with the second Adam, with food. So it really comes down to what the power of Christ is here to do. The power of Christ was not here to glorify Satan or to obey Satan or to feed himself. It was here for you. He was here to show the glory of God to those around him. And everything that we read here says that it was just he and Satan out in the wilderness. What would have turning bread uh, stone to bread have done? So, uh, mind-blowing right there. Uh, next, we have the The temple. Now, I don't know the geography as well as I think I should, but pretty sure there wasn't a temple over there in the wilderness. How did he get from the wilderness to the top of the temple? I mean, we know what happened. And there's a a couple really good uh, commentaries on this that just spend chapters and chapters talking through all the different... Uh, ways that theologians think this occurred and, and we aren't going to dwell on it but it's something to, to really think through because Satan is tempting him yet again and in this case so he, he's already been fasting 40 days 40 nights right before that he was uh, baptized and right after the baptism what happens he's affirmed by God the Father? So now he's got Satan and it's such a humiliating thing to have such a, uh, a tempter, such a snake come in and try to coax you into things. And so somehow, some way, Jesus and Satan find themselves on the temple, and Satan's like, jump down and the angels will pick you up. So, Christ responded the first time with Scripture. So, Satan shifts and starts trying to coax him with Scripture. Keep that in mind. He is a deceiver. The first temptation may be something small and something that you think, Oh, it's not really a sin. But he then transforms what he does and makes sure that he's coming at you directly. And so he... Quote scripture. And then Jesus quotes scripture right back. The third one is the most heinous. And the biggest slap in the face. As if Satan has the authority to grant what he was offering. and Maybe... I mean, we all know Satan's not all-knowing. We know that. And so maybe Satan didn't know what he was dealing with. Maybe Satan didn't understand the hypostatic union. I don't know. But it was the biggest slap in the face and humiliating to have such a peon come in and say, I'll give you this. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. And I think it's important here to note that After that, Satan didn't just leave and never come back. It specifically says that he departed from him until an opportune time. There's so much in this passage. We can dwell on this for a very long time. And I think one of the things that strike me is that in our day-to-day life, you can fight so much. And um, they'll tell you that when, in the beginning of the day, you can make decisions real fast and stick by them. And throughout the rest of the day, the wear and tear on the, de- on the day plays a toll on you. And at the end of the day, you're likely not to follow your own responses to those decisions. Jesus was fasting for 40 days. As a man, I don't know that I could have withstood a temptation to say, there's bread, now eat it. And, and that's what it's talking about. When Jesus was tempted in every way, there is no way in which you feel tempted that he didn't work through. And people will come and argue today and say, oh, there, were, there wasn't the internet then. They didn't have cars. He wasn't tempted to speed. He was tempted in every way imaginable, and in more ways and more intense than you will ever feel. Okay, so talking about the humiliation um, of being tempted by Satan, um, Christ christ knew who he was and to have satan come and directly affront him was a humiliating fact because satan had no power over him he was not the creator of the universe where jesus was he had no authority to to grant him those things and so it was uh, an affront to him let's move on to the next part of the question and the infirmaries. In the flesh whether common to nature of man or particularly accompanying that of his low condition another way to to look at that is uh, and the frailty of his body whether common to the natural human condition or particularly associated with his own poor situation So let's uh, let's read through some of the scripture proofs for this one and then see if we can't figure out what the larger catechism is trying to present to us here. So Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Go ahead. All right, so therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So we just talked about his being tempted, right? But this is saying that he had to make himself like us in every which way. So he's dealing with the same aches and pains and issues that we're dealing with. Hebrews 4.15, and we're going to read it loud. Go ahead. All points. Oh, go ahead. Yet Yet without sin. So in all ways, he was tempted. He didn't sin. He didn't sin in the heart. He didn't sin in the mind. He didn't sin in action. So many look and they say that sin is the action, and it's not. It happens here, and he didn't do it. Isaiah uh, 52, 13 through 14. Max. Almost there? Okay. All right, I'll go ahead and read this one. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his vestige was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men you know sometimes we just don't think about how much christ had to endure how he came from this state way up here way down here and just by the very nature of living in this estate he had to endure a lot and if he had come in as a man in a kingdom and in a palace, he would have still had to endure some of, some of our indignities. He didn't choose that life. He, he went below that. He went to the lowest of low. So what are some of the indignities uh, off the top of your head? What are some of the natural human condition issues Christ had to deal with? What are some things that naturally were inflicted upon him?
1: He was hungry.
0: He was hungry. That's a good one. Hunger. Mark eleven twelve. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. What else? Tired. Tired. John four six. Now Jacob's well there. Uh, was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. What else do we have? Thirsty. thirsty. John four six. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being, I'm sorry, thirsty. John nineteen twenty eight. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, "I thirst." He was scared. Uh, Don't have that one right in the front, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, absolutely he was scared. And it's a feeling that we all know, and I think it's a good understanding that fearfulness is not a sin. This is a natural human condition that we are dealing with uh, as part of the fallen world. All right, so what are some other things? He slept. So uh, in Mark four thirty-eight, he was in the stern asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him, and he said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? So he was tired enough that he slept. It's not like Christ came down and was a man, but he didn't have to eat, sleep, or... He had to do all of that. He likely got splinters. He liked, I mean, just the standard stuff... That occurs in this world occurred to him. He couldn't fly. Um, couldn't be in two places at once. And physically being in two places at once. This, this is where a, a doctrine comes in called ubiquity. Uh, that the Lutheran. It's a Lutheran doctrine. And it's wrong. It basically says that Christ could physically be in his body two places at the same time. He was constrained by that. And how do we know that? We know that from John 11, 6, 21. And, I'm sorry, John 11, 6, and then verse 21. So verse 6 said, So when he had heard that he was sick, he was he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And then... Jumping up to verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If he had been multiple places at once, obviously, he could have done that. But he was in a human body. All right, so Isaiah 63, 9. So he endured these things for others. This is another Uh, Another human condition uh, that he had to work with. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. And then Mark 8, 17 through 18. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason? Because you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive or understand Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? How frustrating is it to be working with somebody and they just don't get what you're saying? Jesus did that too. His best friends turned away from him in his moment of need. Every one of them. One of his apostles betrayed him with a kiss. So, and there's, there's some aspect to this question that, that we can look back at and say that some of these things were exclusively because Christ was Christ. I mean, who else, when they're born, has an order put down to kill Everybody within an age range because they want to kill you. That's exclusive to Christ. There are so many things here that situations that if you had been in those times and you had seen how they were reacting to Christ, it'd be above and over the top because they hated him. He was poor. He had nowhere to lay his head. When he was paying the tax, he performed a miracle to get coin from the fish's mouth. So, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, willingly and voluntarily placed himself under the law, liable to all the censures and seizures as a representative of sinners. And the way Jesus was treated throughout his life was humiliating. How should that make you feel? We don't sit here and just have pity. Christ did that for us. We should be grateful, eternally grateful that Christ came down to the lowest of low estates lived he walked way more than a mile in our shoes and endured so much more because of who he is and so when we're tempted we should be resisting the temptation we should not live in despair We will have temptations. We will have hardships in our life. We should know that Christ endured those as well. He is our mediator. He is who we're communicating with. And we should be communicating with him to work through those. So Christ endured all that and more on our behalf. And we should be so eternally thankful to him. Any questions? Just a,
3: maybe a brief comment back on the Isaiah 52 passage in verse 14, talking about his appearance being marred more than any man. Um, I think sometimes when we consider the the passion of Christ and his being his suffering and being beaten um, before he was crucified, we get. We, we hear and we know um, the implements and the methods of the Romans to to uh, to do such things to people um, before they are put on the cross. Um, and we, we, we hear of those things and, and then consider that in reference to Christ, but I think that that verse is uh, very telling in that uh, the extent of the suffering that he went through was unlike any other man had gone through himself and um not only was he beaten but he was marred uh i mean beaten to a pulp so to speak right um grotesque looking uh physically um and um and so you know i think that that those types of words here from the lord through isaiah um kind of help us to understand the uh the uh, depth of the suffering and, uh, and humiliation that Christ endured for us, yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I, this is
2: such a wonderful topic, just uh, worthy of meditation.
1: Uh, this thing about Christ under the law. So it's like that, <laughs> it's like the filter through which God relates to us right so even though any each sin is not equally severe right that we could commit yet they're equally guilt, right so you know James Stiles, if you violate just one tiniest spot of the law okay well now you're, you're in the guilty category right and then the, the judgment will be what you get for violating the whole law, right? Death and separation. And so for Christ to be put under the law, he is being ultimately judged on that standard. He is, talking about humiliation, he's, you know, he's been put under that standard that he has to fulfill. To every single jot of tittle, because if he didn't, he'd be in the guilty category, and he would get the judge. Because there's only two categories, right? There's the law that you're under, or you're under grace, which is Christ, the filter through which God looks at us and deals with this ultimate. And so, fulfilling that is being under that is just such, you know, such a humility. I think for the Creator, but then it's also glory because he fulfilled it. Did it perfectly, which allowed the other category to have its power, right? So, being subject, I think, to the law as a filter through which he is covenantally, as a man, uh, standardized by God, is, is is really
0: incredible. When I was when I was reading it, and it's a very, um, uh, it, it's not a complete analogy, right? But when I was going through and studying this, the, the thing that came to mind is a developer, right? When when a developer develops an, an application, they always add more features so that they can go in and do things to it, right? They have elevated rights. So whenever they go into the application, they, they sort of sit above the average user because they can do all these other things.
1: <laughs>
0: and And it just struck me as, uh, that's just the best analogy that I was coming up with at the time. But when Christ came down, he, he didn't have any cheat cards. He didn't have any extra admin privileges that allowed him to do these things. He he suffered just like you. Yeah.
4: Well, we're addressing... I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, David. So in that vein, he's refuting Satan
1: with Scripture, is that because he memorized those Scriptures, or is he tapping into his...
0: Deity, Scripture doesn't say. But I would choose to say he was preaching in the synagogue. He, he knew the scriptures there. And uh, even as a boy, he was uh, able to intellectually work through the um, theologians of the time.
4: On that same topic, when we're we're going through this section in the larger, and we're we're hitting on these these issues of, um, in his life, in his birth, in his life, in his death, right now we're discussing the life, it's very important that we stay within the context of the scriptures. The divines did a really good job giving us scriptural context to each question and answer, and uh, thank you for... We're doing a good job doing that. Calvin in his Institutes addresses some of these things as well, and it's really important that we don't drift into the mystery, right? Because it is extremely mysterious that he is God and that he is man. And some of us that have been around a long time, not just Ken. Also. And we, when we think about these things and you hear them over a long period of time and you contemplate them and you, it seems, it, you can go into the mysterious, and what I'm saying Calvin addresses this, don't go beyond the scriptures, don't go beyond the doctrines that the, God wants us to know about that mystery of God and man and one particularly when we're talking about temptation and when we're talking about he is God and man. As you read this, you realize that he humbled himself even more and he was humiliated even more years and years as, as you read these things because you realize how ungrateful these people are that he created everything and they're questioning everything or that he's experiencing these human emotions. Um, We only go with what he tells us. And we can't, we can make some um, practical assumptions. Like you said, he was a carpenter, probably got splinters. Those are all very practical assumptions. But we can't, as Calvin says, drift into the mystic. He gives us his word to know exactly
0: how he was tempted and how he was healed. Yeah. All right. We're going to have to close it up. Any final questions? All right. Well, thank you for allowing me to be up here today. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we we are so thankful for what you endured as we've studied over this uh, last 45 minutes how, how you have endured so much more than we will ever uh, have to endure, and we are so grateful to you. Um, Lord, we, we pray that, that our thinking of this would not be calloused. Lord, that we would understand your goal when you came down to earth, and Lord, that you accomplished it without question. Lord, we pray that when we are tempted, when we are dealing with the troubles and hardships of life, that we reach out to you. Lord, that our strength would be found in you. Lord, we be, uh, please be with Pastor today as, as he is preaching on oaths. We pray that you would open our Eyes and ears, that we would receive your word today, that we would put it to work in our lives. Uh, Lord, bless this church and those attending it, and uh, and keep us safe in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.